Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. All right, here we are. Welcome to episode 300 of Life in the Stocks. My name's Matt Stocks. This is my podcast and my guest this week for this very special episode, this milestone episode of the show, is the goth king himself, Mr. Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins. What an honor um, and what an absolute joy it was to finally have Billy on the show. I interviewed Billy once before this conversation you're about to hear back in 2014. And when I launched this podcast in 2017, Billy was top of the list of dream guests to eventually get on the show. It's taken us seven years to track him down. But with the help of my friend, previous podcast guest, filmmaker, music video director, and frequent Smashing Pumpkins collaborator, Kevin Kerslake, we finally made it happen. So I want to say a big thank you to Kevin for setting this interview up. A big thank you to Billy's manager, Pete Galley, for his help in facilitating this conversation. And of course, a huge thank you to the goth king himself, Mr. Billy Corgan, for taking the time and for being a legend, a legend of a songwriter, a legend of a human. And I could not be more thrilled with how this conversation went. Be sure to check out the new Smashing Pumpkins album if you haven't already. It's called Autumn. It is absolutely fantastic. And it's out now. Um, I'm also in the process of making a gigantic Smashing Pumpkins playlist containing all of my favorite songs from all of their records across the years. Uh, And you'll find links to that in all of my social media bios at DJ is where you'll find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you're not already, please do subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. We're available everywhere, including YouTube. So yeah, please sign up, give us a follow if you're not already. And last but never least, I just wanted to say a big, big, big thank you to everybody who has listened to and supported this podcast over the last seven years. Uh, Here we are, episode 300 with one of the truly greatest songwriters to ever do it um one of my favorite artists of all time and an absolute dream guest for me so let's not waste any more time let's jump right into episode 300 of life in the stocks with the man the myth the legend mr billy corgan from the smashing pumpkins here we go
What's up, Billy? I've got visual, uh, but no sound. I think you just need to unmute the mic at the bottom. That's what I love about technology. I, I signed in on time, and then it said updating uh, program. Classic. And then I had a then I had agreed to terms of service. <laughs> and then, of course, it muted everything. It's a whole process. Is... Yes, sir. So here I am. Thank well, you for uh, having me. It's a pleasure to be reacquainted. Uh, I'm not sure if you'll remember this because obviously you do these things all the time. But we met nearly 10 years ago. Uh, 2014 would have been the year. You were on the Monuments tour. Uh, and you came into a radio studio in London where I was working at the time. And we had a beautiful chat, a really in-depth and productive conversation. But I'd like to start our conversation today here because the man I met that day and the man that I've seen in recent interviews with Zane, uh, with Alison, I've been enjoying and loving your podcast series as well. And there seems to be this real light and radiance around you at the moment and, and you give off this overwhelming sense of joy and peace and contentment and love and happiness not that you were super dark when we met but i can just see from from the guy that i met in 2014 to, to where you seem to be in your life now um you seem like you're in a really good place and it's lovely and inspiring and wonderful to see oh i lost you again oh my god <laughs> Oh my there God. Go. We're back in the game. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's so unprofessional. Um, yeah. I mean, the first thing I think when you say all those nice things is, uh, you know, from a wrestling point of view, don't kill my gimmick, bro. Um, <laughs> I am the goth king. Um, although I guess Robert is the goth emperor. So that makes me the goth king. Um, and no one can ever take that away from you. I hope not. I mean, uh, I'm fine to give it to Robert and he seems fine to give it to me. So, um, but you know, you never know with Robert. Um, you know, it's different. Uh, as soon as you said that we met around the time of monuments, the first thing I thought was that was such a strange, strange time for me because I'd pretty much given up on the idea of the band continuing as any kind of entity. Um, I dealt with all the slings and arrows of the idea of continuing as the only uh, member of the original band in the band. And I just got worn out by the questioning and the constant uh, need to question music, which, um, you know, it's no surprise at this point that, you know, I was the primary author and recording agent of all those classic records. So it, it, you get tired of the lazy take of like, band with Billy only equals this, band with these other people equal this other thing. And a lot of the things that people would cite the band wasn't even in the room the room for um so it gets kind of funny right it's like a it's like a game of perception so at that point i was just so tired of the game of perception i didn't even care to play the game of perception i mean i could have and then right about that time suddenly you know um things start to change it's like uh the minute you give up on something it opens the door for something new to happen and so here comes this beautiful uh fourth chapter i guess you could call it of the smashing pumpkins with james and jimmy and the band again and i think we've released something like 80 songs in the last few years with another uh, 16 in the pipeline as you and i speak so it's um yeah life is full of surprises well i think as well and we don't need to go too much into this because this is your private life but obviously in the last decade you've met and fallen in love with your lovely partner oh Scott. you're going to give you know so you're going to give credit to someone else i i just got all my credit back and, uh... started a family and you know entered this whole new chapter in your personal life as well and that's got to play into the overall 
quality of life, right? Has to. Well, you know, it's interesting to me is that um, James has two children, Jimmy has two children, and I have two children. And I think that's the main difference in us from back then and now is that we have a different set of responsibilities in our personal life. And that seems to have squared us up with one another in a different way. Um, of course, everybody has their self-interest and they should. I don't have a problem with that. But our own self-interest seems to be tempered by the fact that we also have to worry about taking care of our families. And that seems to have kind of calmed everybody down to a very respectable level of, um, hey, let's let's take some of these banned things that come up a little bit slower. Or maybe in the past, we would have been quicker to react, you know, alchemically off of one another. The sparks that are good for music weren't always good for life. And I think we've all um, benefited from the balance that that our families have brought us. And and what's really nice is we run a very, you know, pro family atmosphere. So it's not unusual to see my children on tour, Jimmy's children on the tour bus, James's children come out at different times. And so that to me is like the real mark of accomplishment with us is not the fact that we can continue to play music, but the fact that we sort of achieve this balance in our personal lives with one another. That to me it strikes me as very different from where the way it used to be and magical right to kind of have come through the trenches together through so much and be at this place now where you can share the experience with not just each other but with your families and each other's families must feel great yeah it's hard sometimes to explain to people who either weren't there or didn't really understand the intensity that we went through in a particular period in our lives and, um, you know, it's a terrible comparison, but, you know, I at least relate when I see people who served in war together, or people who were on a winning soccer team or something, you know, there's that sort of bond that's created through the intensity of the experience. And that certainly is something that no one can take from you. And, um, of course I have the heliographic ability to listen to an old song from them and kind of put myself back in the room and remember the emotions and the, uh, you know, again, the intensity of the time. So that seems to all kind of worked itself out. So you had this 14 years or so of, you know, rise and fall and explosion. And then you had this 15 something years. Um, Jimmy, of course, was around here and there, but where we were able to put some version of the original band, three quarters of it back together. And somehow it all, it's like some sort of Tolkien thing. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, there's book one, book two, and now we're on book three. Um, and book three is far different than book one and two. Well, we should talk about maybe the uh, the secret weapon within the band as well. Jeff Schroeder, who's obviously been with you since 2006. Uh, was it you and him who, because for me, two of my favorite Pumpkins records, which don't get anything like the love that they do, is Monuments. And, and Oceana, Oceana, I adore. I'm not sure whether it's because I discovered it at a very special time in my life uh, or whether it is just the kind of unique sonic quality of that record, or those two things combined, but love that album. and. You know, Jeff's obviously been a part of the group since 2006, is it? He's been with you? Yeah, you know, it's um, in terms of Jeff's, Jeff's story with the band, you know, Jeff was in, you know, kind of the L.A. music scene playing with indie bands, loved shoegaze music and, of course, loved rock. So he seemed particularly voiced to be able to step in and play the pumpkin style because it is that combination of my bloody valentine meets black sabbath or something and you can draw about 50 versions of that comparison 
um, Swerve Driver and Thin Lizzy. You know what I mean? There's like, mm -hmm. there's all these weird balances in the band and you have to be able to play guitar in a particular way. So Jeff, and Jeff had seen the band back in the 90s as well a few times. So Jeff had the experience as a fan and then stepped in into a time which at the time, uh, which was the zeitgeist period, 2006, seven and eight, was very, very negative around the band, which ultimately led to Jimmy leaving the band for about seven years. Um, and was do documented in a, in a documentary called uh, If All Goes Wrong, um, where we sort of embraced the idea of the fans turning on us <laughs> um, <laughs> in true in true pumpkin style. Um, quickly, you know, Jimmy and I had reapproached uh, coming back together in the band with the Zeitgeist album is we were just going to pick up where we left off with Machina. Uh, we didn't realize that in those seven years that we were away from the public's eye that they expected us to come back as whatever version of the band that they wanted, which at that time was Siamese Dream 2.0. So there was this instant tension. And then, of course, the press picked up on all that. And then down you go. Um, and this was, of course, back at a time when, you know, the hipster websites and the and the media had a lot more say in, in things that, than they do now. They've all kind of fallen on their own uh, petard at this point. So Jeff stepped in this very intense situation. And then here he is in 2009 with uh, just me as the only original member. And then we hire uh, two other people, Nicole Fiorentino and Mike Byrne. Mike Byrne was 19 years old working at McDonald's when I hired him. And Nicole Fiorentino had played in some L.A. indie bands as well. And I tried to build this new lineup of the band, which which if you listen to the Oceania album, which to your, to your uh, credit, has gained a stature in the last few years. I see where a lot more people name check it. And they really do realize that it belongs up there with some of the better Pumpkins works. It's um, a beautiful album. Beautiful oh, album. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I worked very hard. And, and, and just as a quick uh, thing, since you brought it up, um, you know, the whole idea with Oceania was to wrestle with the past. Okay, I'm the only original member of the band. Instead of running from it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embrace it. I'm going to go back to the themes and the sonics of, of OG pumpkins and see if there's anything left. And I and I was sort of surprised. There was a little bit left, but not as much as even I had assumed. And then I ended up having to kind of develop a new language, which sort of dealt with the defeat that I couldn't just sort of pick up and, you know, reinvent the band on, on the fly like I had thought I could. So I think that's what's so beautiful about the album. It's, so, it's about heartbreak and loss and about sort of ultimately accepting something that you don't have control over. Um, gosh, there's so many things to talk about here, and I don't want to waste everybody's time. No, Jeff, no, it's all great. Um, okay, cool. So, uh, so, so, so Jeff, you know, um, that lineup, I, I thought that lineup would be the, you know, the, the Smashing Pumpkins lineup to carry on for another 10 years. That didn't happen. There were some personal things that kind of came up, uh, which aren't worth getting into here, but... Jeff, to his credit, was the person sort of standing there poking me in the chest and saying, and I'm paraphrasing, so this isn't coming out of my mouth. Hey, man, you're Billy Corrigan. You don't deserve this stuff that's going on around you. And then there's management stuff, too. You know, you don't deserve this. You deserve better. Like, I know I'm 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 one of the people you're trying to reach. You've got to get back to these things that are important to a fan like myself. And if you can find that in yourself, I think you'll find what you're looking for. It, How hard it, it is, is it to get out of your own way as well, Billy, when you come with the kind of baggage, for lack of a better phrase, and that can be good and bad, like there's a looming shadow of this legacy that you've created behind you at all times. How important and also hard is it to try and get out of the way of that and just focus on you know, the music, the art? That's a wonderful question. Um, to be succinct about it, the difference is a fan, and I'm talking about the person you meet walking down the street, They relate to you with something that they already understand 
So their, their understanding of getting back to what you're good at is to return to the thing that they already know. But if you look at music historically, when people go back to what they've already done, the results are always limited. If you look at true musical innovation from the greatest that have ever walked the boards, whether it's U2 or Elvis Presley or Madonna, they, have, they find an ability to take the thing that they are and transform it into almost like a completely different movie with a different set. And somehow you sort of like, oh, this movie's cool too. And then you want to take that journey with that artist. Well, Bowie and would so, have been the master at that stuff. Oh, right? well, friend and hero. And uh, yeah, absolutely. A huge influence on, on me and of course the band. So now I'd done the reinvention thing a lot in the 90s. So here I was trying to do the reinvention thing in the 2000s. And it wasn't really working um, because there was this pressure on me to make Siamese Dream 2.0 or whatever, you know, to make the same joke again and again. And what Jeff did is he said, no, you got to get back to the thing that you do, which is, you know, kind of jump in full feet forward, make no apologies for what you're doing and come up swinging and really believe in what you're doing. I tried to do that after the um, Oceana album and, and it just got harder and harder and harder. And I even tried to make an electronic album around that time. So by the time I got to Monuments, which is around the time you and I met, I was completely defeated by that process. Uh, think of it uh, as a bad analogy of the day, like uh, trying to defeat the boss at the end of a video game level. Mm -hmm. Like the boss was me or the boss was the old me or the boss was what people wanted for me. And I just could not get around it or through it. I had to change something in myself or I had to let go of something. I don't know. It sounds like a Lord of the Rings movie, but that's how it worked. Um, so when you and I met, I'd sort of accepted, okay, the pumpkins is a thing. It's done. I've tried it. It doesn't work. It's over. Um, and I went into this kind of depression, uh, as you do. And uh, I started writing acoustic music, which ultimately became the OG Lala album. Out of the blue, here comes Rick Rubin. He calls me and says, what are you working on? I said, I'm working on these acoustic songs I don't think you would be interested in. He said, send them to me. And a month later, he calls me back and says, these are really great. Keep working. And I want to work. I want to record you. So I start working on OG Lala. And right about that time, as I'm working on OG Lala, accepting, okay, Pumpkins is done. I'm just going to just be a musician now. And if I'm not that guy anymore, you know, the goth king, it's, it's good. I've had a great life and, and somehow in accepting all that, here comes James E. Hot out of nowhere after 16 years. Hey, How did that reconnection begin, that spark? He, somebody reached out to me and said that um, James wants to email you. Is that okay? You know, he does, basically doesn't want to start a fight. You know what I mean? Like, is it cool if he emails you? I said, sure. And he sent me a nice email and we met for dinner in LA and we sat and broke bread or a gluten-free bread for the first time in gosh, 16 years, just sat one-on-one -on -one and just had a meal and just talked about life and family and the old days. And, you know, my father, who he knew when he was a kid and, you know, we just talked about stuff you would talk about with a family member. We didn't talk about the band so much as you know, we just talked about where we'd been and where we were and that opened the door. And, you know, you know, and then it wasn't like the next day we started rehearsing. There was, I think, another two years or so before James even started kind of showing back up in the Pumpkins world. So we very quietly repaired what needed to be repaired just by staying in touch and wishing each other a Merry Christmas here and there. And somehow that opened the door. And then Jimmy um, had been out of the band as well. Um, and there was a situation where we were, Jeff and I were going to do a tour as Pumpkins, but under this thing that we did where we were doing kind of the acoustic and electronic side of the band called In Plain Song, which was actually very successful. People really did like it. But obviously the expectations were a lot lower on the band, uh, not only for fans, but in, in business. It was more like, just let's, let's get back to having fun playing some songs. 
And we had this guy lined up to be drummer, a drummer for the thing. And, and it just didn't work out. And without five days to go, I needed somebody to play drums for this tour, which was booked <laughs> and sold out shows and all this stuff. And I called Jimmy and I said, I need help, you know? So Jimmy just came back. It was like, there he was, you know? So meanwhile, James and I are repairing our relationship over here. And Jimmy and I are, are back to playing music over here, which is what we're best at. And um, next thing you know, I just slowly, I'm back into this completely other chapter of the book or book. God, I'm full of bad analogies today. Um, did it feel that way almost immediately? Like when the three of you are back? No, no, it took a while, did it? No, no, no. It was, it was slow. It was slow. Um, it makes sense to me now. At the time, I think it's a human desire. You just want to flip a switch. You know, you just want to go back to, I guess, your best memory of the thing. You know, us on stage in '94, just like rocking out. Like, but we're not those people anymore. And there, there's. I think that's the beauty of life. And that's you know, my okay, father, isn't it? That's the thing. Yeah. Just... My father said something before he passed away, which was like, he said, the good thing about getting old is you forget a bunch of stuff. So you can die peacefully, right? And I'm not saying I'm at that point, but what I am saying is sometimes time does heal wounds. The things that seem really important in 1997, you know, you look now and you go, oh, that's kind of silly and it's not even worth getting into. And you just kind of let stuff go. And then you get back to the best part of it. And, and I think to kind of wrap up the whole tangent, James, Jimmy, and I, I don't think really understand each other. I don't think we really understand what made us successful. I don't think we really understand um, what made our combination magical to people because it didn't always seem magical to us, although the results would indicate that there was something. <laughs> but what we have realized in our in our in our 50s here and again with families standing there as part of that balancing responsibility is when we're together good things happen and if you just let that happen and kind of keep, keep the other stuff at bay best you can then it's good for everybody for all the right reasons and that seems to have kind of fixed all the other stuff as best as it can be fixed i love it i love it well you said something in the interview with zane about how the importance of, of resolve and repair has always been a component of the pumpkins music and, and i love that as well because you've always been a provocative and disruptive and, and sometimes challenging in good ways band <laughs> but there's always been at the core of it this absolute need i think to yeah resolve and repair and that's obviously happening within the camp uh, and it's still part of the music that you're making as well it's always been hard i think for people to understand that um, the most critical decision the band ever made was circa 1989 when we kind of came to accept that we were not going to be as great as our heroes. And you can pick, you know, whether it was the Beatles or Bowie or Sabbath or Queen or whatever. We just, we came to accept we're just not that good. And so in that, in that decision-making process in 89, we decided to kind of embrace who we were, which was a very strange combination of alchemy. And at the same time, sort of both pay tribute to rock and roll and sort of destroy it at the same time. To be simple about it, uh, it's, a, it's a very Buddhistic idea that there are no sacred cows. So um, you can both love the Beatles and make fun of the Beatles at the same time. You can be the Beatles and you can be the Ruddles. You can, you can take Queen's pomposity and you can be so absurd with it that a hipster wants to shoot himself in the head. You know what I mean? It's like, like we would be asked routinely in the 90s, is this camp? Is this 
a tribute? What is this? But in the in the in the, let's call it the meme avatar age of Instagram, we were actually pretty ahead of the curve in understanding that the future of media was taking a bunch of broken pieces and stitching it back together and saying, well, this is my version of the mirror. And if you want to look into it, have have at it. We were really ahead. It's best, isn't it? Yes, we were very, very ahead of that. And obviously, Bowie had a huge influence on that. But Bowie's version was 1976. Our version was the rise of the internet, 95. Um, People flaming you behind keyboards. I mean, we were dealing with a whole different set of information plus a whole different access to information because of the internet. Um, And so that sort of Frankenstein version of the band, album to album to album, as long as it yielded results and, you know, to be blunt about it hits everything kind of worked um but the process internally was exhausting the process of battling it out with record executives and and hipster media was exhausting and so we thought we were sort of uh bulletproof and you know come 96 you know here here comes now the bill due on our excess both internally and externally and then once that process started to unwind then i documented you know, I, I documented our rise and I documented our decline. But to your point, always there was this, this idea of trying to get back home. You know, this idea of like, and and it's really um, fascinating to me because the fans that really, really paid attention, and there aren't a lot of them, they understood that in the middle of this kind of crazy thing that we built and tore down and built and tore down was just four very normal people who really wanted to be understood. And if you were willing to take that journey and get to the end of the movie, you actually came out and thought, these these guys are all right, you know. There's they're they're not they're not bad people. They're they're a little confused, but uh, you know, there's a good heart in there. And I think that's always been the divide for people who like the band or love the band, and people who loathe the band is they don't understand that it, in the middle of it, it's a bit of a Monty Python wink going on all the time. And if you if you if you believe the band's pomposity is real and that I am this megalomaniac, well, of course, the the whole idea of the thing is insufferable because who goes on about all these Warholian concepts constantly. But that was the whole point. It was to turn the band inside out and turn it into a device of both um, mockery and, and uh, uh, not irony, but we wanted, to, we wanted to expose the hypocrisy of everything around us. Um, and we did it. We've done it for over 30 years, and they're still having a go at us, which is kind of funny. It says something about the power of the idea. Um, when I was a kid, just to belabor the point one, one more round, when I was a kid, Warhol was absolutely made fun of. He was, he was mocked in art class when I went to school. People would say, oh, what an artist he makes paint, you know, he makes tomato cans like, huh, I could do that. Um, and even in the eighties going into the nineties, he was seen as kind of a diminished figure, you know, publicly. Like his time had come and gone. And I used to see him in New York, even I would go out to clubs and there'd be Warhol in the corner, you know, and it wasn't, there was like, there wasn't a line of people rushing to talk to him. They were much more interested in, you know, Oliver Stone, who was in the other corner, you know what I mean? And there was a line waiting to see him because everybody wanted to be in his movie. But Warhol was just this kind of faded figure in the, in the New York scene. Now Warhol, I think is the second most traded artist in the world behind Picasso. Warhol's, core idea of what art was and its functionality and its true kind of social message ultimately won out or whether or not somebody thought him painting a 
a, a tomato can was a good idea. So that was kind of our point and continues to be our point is that the thing that we created is far more valuable than whether or not you like what we did musically or who we were as people. The personality game that, that rose up around the rock critic in the late 60s into the 70s and Lester Bangs and that whole world going into Spin Magazine and, and Rolling Stone, you know, we're the authority, of course, Melody Maker and the NME in the UK and that, and then and then ultimately Pitchfork, which, you know, oh, you know, the, the, the great hype on Don't Sell Out eventually sold out to Condé Nast. Uh, ha ha ha. Our point was it's all fake. It's all it's all a construct. David Bowie's a nerd. Is David Bowie a great artist? Absolutely. He's a great singer. Unbelievable. But he's a nerd. Like, can't you see that he's a nerd? And it's kind of cool if you think if you think of Bowie as a nerd, you actually like him more. Because he's he's gone to great effort to convince you he's not a nerd. You know, the Beatles went way out of the way to convince you that they were complete true originators when the fact of the matter is they were thieves. But that doesn't mean they weren't great. Lou Reed, because he was in the Warhol camp, was a little bit more in on the joke about playing. Like Lou Reed talked about how he wrote heroin when he was 17. He'd never even tried heroin. And here, 50 years later, people are still shooting up thinking that they're Lou Reed. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? It's the it's the joke of rock and roll. And if you're inside the joke, you're not supposed to expose that it's a joke. A good so we've been of mine once told me, Billy, that all good rock records should also be categorized in the comedy section of any record store as well. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, that's what the Beatles did get right, is there was always a wink behind the whole thing. You know, we're all in a yellow submarine. Ha ha ha. You know, hey, we're getting stoned at the BBC. Ha ha ha. Right. Um, I think that's what people really love about rock and roll is like, hey, just take me away for a day. You know, life's hard. Just get me out of my head for a second. It's it's a way of getting stoned without getting stoned, right? So um yeah. So here we are, you know, I, I'm not sure what we are at this point. Um, you know, we just we just released a triple rock opera. So I guess we're still working on the joke. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And it's a fantastic album and it's full of so many different textures and, and themes. I'm 10 episodes in to your 33 podcast series. Oh, cool. Thank you. I've been absolutely loving it. I'm going to finish it. I just didn't have time to finish it before our conversation today. But the insight, the level of depth and anecdotal richness that you share is going to be so appreciated, I'm sure. How how was it for you opening you know, the treasure chest in such a way and just delving in there? and sharing so much that up until now i think has probably been kept you know quite close to your chest was it fun was it daunting was it exciting was it all of the above well i'd made the decision um you know <laughs> somewhere around 1991 being grilled by some uh you know melody maker you know uh, reporter in quotations that i was just not going to divulge most of the good information anymore um, if they're going to make fun of me i'm just going to let them make fun of the stuff i give them as opposed to the reality so yeah, for 30 years or whatever, I just I just kept all that stuff in. Um, it's funny, as much as has been talked about the pumpkin story through the years, I mean, only probably about 10% of the information ever really has gotten out. So what I found 
curious to me, and I didn't realize until I started doing the podcast, was once I was able to establish my own storytelling style and and tell the story the way I wanted to, then I was more than happy to share a lot of things that I'd never shared because, um, including about how we work as a unit, because okay, there it is. If you want to criticize it or tear it apart, that's fine. But at least you get my version of it. Because I had that experience so many times. And it still happens, of course, where I, I give something very much in context and people pull a quote out, you know, one sentence out. And of course, when you pull out the one sentence, it sounds really... Well, you know, that is just the nature of modern journalism, isn't it? Oh, it's yeah. No, it's... a bite-sized pull that becomes a headline and that's the article. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the UK is 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 the purveyor of this of this style. I mean, they they invented it, I think. Um, but um, it's really comfortable. It's comforting, for lack of a better word, to know that at least if I'm telling you, the listener, a story, uh, excuse me, about something sensitive or something that's like doesn't always put me in the best light. At least if you hear my tone of voice and you hear the way I'm explaining it, you can say, okay, I kind of get it. Yeah, you were a jerk there, but I understand that you know life's messy and not always perfect. It's a lot different than telling that story to a journalist and then crossing your fingers and hoping that they give the right subtlety and context to it. I recently I did an interview for uh, I think it was the Guardian in the UK, and the guy that interviewed me was a former Pitchfork writer, um, really nice guy from Chicago. And you know when the article came out, and he, he did a good job of sort of explaining my position. But the other half of the article was his him explaining to the hipsters and qualifying why he was interviewing me and all. it was this weird thing of like both performance art for his crowd and then somehow letting me speak somehow in the middle of all his performative stuff and uh, you know again that's modern journalism right he's, he's he's just as concerned about the crowd that follows him on twitter than he is about my 35 year history um so just to be able to create this is a long too long an answer but to be able to create no, your no, own media not. no but to create your own media i think is is is, is the part that i was surprised by um, because uh, how can I put it? When you're uh, when you're interviewing for a big paper, they want the the most salacious quotes because they want to drive readership or clicks. When I'm talking to you as a person via my podcast, if you click off and don't want to listen, I'm cool with that. I'm not here to be entertaining per se. I'm just here to share a story, and if that's entertaining to you, great. But I'm not I'm not trying to sell your papers. I'm trying to explain something it's a totally different vibe around the around the nature of just opening up and, and sharing and it is hugely entertaining i particularly love the uh the openness with which you talk about the experimentation with lsd early on in the band's evolution <laughs> um and, and just how much fun some of those times sound how, how important was was that component to the evolution not just of the sound of the band but to you as a spiritual being well i was surprised that um I would listen to myself on record and I was surprised that I heard messages in my own music um, that seemed to belie a subconscious at work that was greater than and certainly smarter than I was in real life. So that encouraged me to lean into my intuition and my unconscious desires more so than my ego or um, my fear. It gave me a sense that if you could trust the man behind the curtain and we all have a man or a lady or a person behind a curtain, if you can trust that voice that speaks within quite usually quite softly, um, you'll probably have a better read on where life needs to go than if you're guided by your own, uh, you know, envy and avarice. I love it. Yeah. It's, um, 
I only tried LSD for the first time in lockdown and, and it opened my mind in so many ways. You know, I was already pretty in tune with a lot of those things you mentioned um, and just kind of blowing the door open in 2020 during such a strange time. It really helped me in a lot of ways and helped me get through, you know, that period. Um, so I'm grateful for that experience for sure. Yeah. It all, sorry to interrupt. It also, it, it also connected the dots because I've been reading Burroughs and, and, you know, a lot of the great beat writers, it allowed me to connect between what they were talking about. And, and so then I connected those dots. And then of course, even the disassociative work of say a Bowie or the Beatles, uh, not just the psychedelic periods, but all this sort of like, let's call it the different personas of the artists, being able to see behind that and see that they really just masked that the artist put on and took off at will. And that was the public's desire to believe the masks were real. That was really more the problem than the artists need to change the mask. And then, um, and then that led later on to a, a much greater exploration of spirituality. Um, and, and as I like to say, uh, start to embrace the third rail of rock and roll. Uh, the third rail being an analogy for if you touch the third rail, you die. Because, of course, you're not supposed to talk about God in rock and roll. That's the great, you know, that's where everybody throws up their fangs. Um, how dare you? How, you know, talk about all sorts of terrible uh, things invo involving everything else. But please don't talk about God. That's, that's the one thing we can't talk about. I think there's a lot of faith in your music and I love it. I think there's so much euphoria in Smashing Pumpkins music as well that has obviously, you know, in the past come from places of, pain and struggle but i think the miscons one of many misconceptions about your band is that it's like bum out music it's the opposite <laughs> it's the absolute opposite <laughs> it's you the know, most it's... uplifting and inspiring music there is yeah i i used to hear that when i was a kid uh, about the cure that the cure's music was depressing and yet you talk to cure fans and they don't see the band as depressing they actually see the band as sort of light filled and certainly um robert's music indicates that there's a real joy there um and we just saw the cure the other day uh, chloe and i my partner um and had a great time because it really is a celebration of something um anyway i don't need to diverge into that I'm, i guess where i'm trying to go with this um i think i'm quite cool with the fact that a lot of people don't really understand the band and and i've given up on trying to sort of correct the record and somehow in doing that it seems to be correcting itself maybe without me running my mouth uh time and and uh and and spotify are correcting the record um, and the fact you're still here and still releasing the best music of your career as well i mean longevity is everything in this game isn't it and consistency and quality and you know there's not many bands from your generation that are still going and still pushing the envelope and still being vital and creative and exciting yeah well let me say two things about that and i appreciate the compliment um number one Irving Berlin, Berlin, who Irving Berlin, who is arguably the greatest songwriter of all time, uh, wrote I think fifteen hundred songs in his life, and I'm about four hundred, maybe five hundred if you're being really generous. So I got a long way to go. Um, secondarily, um, I studied very hard um, a lot of my favorite artists, and I noticed that there was this thing that happened when they got to about thirty five, forty, where their music tended to get more bland. Uh, and I'm j saying this jokingly, out came the synthesizers, because uh, <laughs> I've certainly had my synthesizer <laughs> moments. Not that and, there's anything um, wrong with a synthesizer. No, I love, I, love me a good, I love me a good synth. Um, God bless Kraftwerk and, and a lot. Um, what I'm trying to say in that is I, I approach those times when I hit my own wall of 
you know, 35, 40, 45, 50, when I hit those walls, I would notice what people would say to me. And, and you would hear words like, uh, protect your legacy. Um, don't spoil what you've already created. Uh, and of course, I've talked openly about how fans wished me dead. So I would stop ruining the music that they already liked. Uh, and that's no joke. That is true. Um, and the only thing I can say, and we're back to a bit of a spiritual moment here, is you have to be willing to die in that process. You have to be willing to kill off the Smashing Pumpkins and Billy Corgan. And you have to be willing to die again and again and again. And where you're willing to do that, you can find something new to say. And I do say this as somebody in his 50s. People who are 40 years old, people who are 50 years old, uh, and then someday when we all turn 60, they deserve to hear music made for them too. Um, the music business and, of course, the cottage industry of journalism is very much focused at, at the youth, and that's totally fine. Um, but I, I do believe that there's nothing wrong with making music for 40-year-olds just as much as I'm trying to make music for teenagers. And lately, we seem to have achieved a balance where both teenagers and people in their 40s and 50s like what we're doing. Life does not stop when you cross a certain line and you get your first wrinkle. Life, in fact, in a, in a, in a way, gets even more intense when you add children to the mix, you mesh families, and you get into the deeper issues of health, loss, losing parents, and stuff like that. Um, so I'm determined to continue to write music that's reflective of my experience. And I, I really, and I say this, if you can, if, if I could paint a mental, a mental, mental image for anybody listening, Imagine me, uh, you know, and this is a bit hyperbolic, but I'm going to go with it. If I was on my knees in front of you with my, my, my hands open in supplication, like, look, I'm just, I'm just one person here. This is my offering to you. You know, there's a candle, uh, there's a lit candle in my, in my hand and, and, and all I'm offering is my version of the light. Um, I just, God gave me a gift. Um, it, I, it, it, I find it fascinating and beguiling and, uh, tormenting and strange and, but it's changed my life and certainly helped other people. I've gotten those messages too. And so my job is just to keep doing what I'm doing the best I can. And this is what I'm going to say. And I, and again, I'm saying this on my knees in front of you mentally, if you don't like it, that's okay. Um, if it's not for you, that's okay. If you don't want to listen, that's okay. It's, I've reached that point where, um, my gift or my need to communicate or my delusion, if you want to be uh, unkind, uh, has no connection to whether or not anybody's listening. Zero. Zero. I feel free. Um, and I think you hear that in the music. If I could draw a straight parallel between the band in 1992 and Carrie Brown studio making Starla or Plume in the middle of the night, because we got a couple hours to make a B-side for a UK single release. And we just tune up some guitars and we just wing an idea out and I write lyrics on a literally on a brown paper bag and we just make music that people still talk to me about that band is still very much there but but you can't go back to being you know 25 in Carrie Brown's studio and 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 taking LSD but what you can do is 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 find that same level of freedom with wherever you are today and I think when you see that lately where we have found that freedom then you see that that band is still in the room do you feel like you have any peers or do you always sort of see the pumpkins as an entity into, into and of themselves? Cause you know, there's, there's many bands who share similar qualities, but I can't really find another band within that alternative community that 
I would draw a kind of direct parallel with you guys. Maybe REM. Do you, do you, do you share any philosophies or kinships with Michael and those guys? Well, sure. I mean, Mike Mills played on Siamese Dream, and um, we were around them a lot in our early days because um, our A&R guy, Mark Williams from Virgin Records at the time, was very close to them. And so we had dinners with them and hung out. And uh, they certainly had an influence on us behind the scenes about how they carried themselves. And we we were certainly fans of their music. Um, so I appreciate even being in that same sentence. Um, I think I think the question of peerage is, is difficult. Um, because, you know, part of our success as an artistic band has a lot to do with our, our failure at times as a commercial band. If we had achieved the same level of commercial success as some of our peers, um, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Foo Fighters, Green Day, maybe we wouldn't be so musically adventurous and we would be under different forces. So uh, I don't judge that, but I certainly at times have been critical over how Generation X as an alternative generation doesn't seem to be putting out a ton of alternative music. And by alternative, I don't mean what you're known for. I mean, continue to push the envelope as an alternative artist. Um, if people want to take their criticism, I'm not talking about the artist. They, I'm, they shouldn't listen to me at all. They should do what's best for them. But if people want to take their criticism to heart as a fan, uh, that's fine. But I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just pointing out the obvious, which is when you think of the Gen X, when you think of the great Gen X artists, at this point in time, you you hardly you're hardly thinking of a ton of progressive and adventurous music. It's just it's you know it's pretty much as most of the artists are on brand, and and um, God bless them if that's what they need to do then or what they want to do, they should. That has nothing to do with my opinion. In terms of anybody, uh, I would compare us to, um, I guess, you know there aren't many that seem to still want to pick up the ball and, and drive it home. Um, I would certainly uh, count Radiohead in, in, you know, they kind of came at the end of the nineties, but, or they were there in the middle, but they, they really found their feet at the end of the nineties um, and became the band that was a world-class band in that sense. Um, you know, they certainly are capable at any given time of, of, of rewriting the script. So um, yeah, I don't know. We seem to be off on our own kind of little magical journey. And what's funny is the people who are noticing are really having a great time and enjoying the fact that the band has had this kind of late period renaissance. And, and, it, and it seems to connect the eras and, and bring back the kind of the joy that people felt about us at times in the 90s. The rest just kind of whinge on with almost the same talking point. Um, <laughs> And Just I live hammering in a that dead nail home, yeah. Sure, and, and I live in a country, uh, you know, that has where is home for you now, Billy? Where are you? I'm I'm still in Chicago, but um, you know, look, I live in the in the hyperbolic atmosphere of this uh, the politics of 2023 America, which has only gotten worse. Uh, uh, you know, if people thought the uh, the fractiousness of the 2016 election was anything, I mean, what's coming is even ten times more intense. Um. So yeah, between culturally and politically and socially, America's going through a very, very tough uh, period. Um, and so, but what I'm trying to get at is, as, as I live in this atmosphere of left, right, you know, one is good, one is bad, or, you know, vice versa. Divide. You know, you, kind of, you, get, you get tired of the same talking points about the same people. Let's just get, say, say it that way. And so I'm looking at talking points that have been used on me for 20, 25 years. And I'm like, can you find a new 
pejorative term. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, you know, tyrant, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, Svengali, you know what I mean? Like get out your dictionary kids, you know, find some new words. Um, I, I had a, I had an interview the other day and the, and the, I think it was for Rolling Stone and the journalist was kind of pushing me on some of these talking points. It was very much about like, uh, Billy Corgan, Billy Corgan before Billy Corgan now, and somehow he kept asking questions, which seemed to indicate that Billy Corgan before was still pretty similar to Billy Corgan now. And I said, Hey man, and I talked to the guy before I, it wasn't contentious at all. I said, look, you do what you got to do to get clicks. I don't really care. Like have, have at it, have, have fun with dead Billy Corgan, you know, make fun of the teeth, do what you got to do, you know? And by the way, I don't have any hair, which is, which is another one they always like to lean on. Um, I'm over here running a tea house that hosts young artists. Last night we had spiritual night. Um, we have comics. Uh, we employ people in the community. Our business was a block away from a mass shooting. We had a, uh, a fundraiser, which raised $300,000 last year for the victims of this mass shooting here in Highland Park, where I live. Uh, you know, we do charity work for animal kill shelters. I have two small children. You know, I run a wrestling company, <laughs> you know. Um, in essence, you choose what version of me you want to talk about. I'm over here doing this current version and and having a lot of fun and um, enjoying getting life. It, getting it done, which is what it's all about, right? Yeah, but I guess what I'm trying to hammer at is, um, and it's not an educational lesson here. I'm just sharing. Um, it's funny, right? That version of Billy Corgan is still very valuable to get clicks, Right. It's like we had a station here once in, in Chicago that um, they, they said, we're only going to do positive news. And if we have to cover negative news, like a murder, we're going to do it with no hyper hyperbolic stuff. We're just going to say this happened. And the station completely bombed. It was, it was seen as a, hey, maybe this can be the new model for news in America. I mean, it bombed. It, was, it got horrible ratings. And I think they changed the format back within four to six months. If people, if people want clicks and bad news and blasts and flames and uh, destroys and, you know, like a Godzilla movie, that's cool. I mean, if I'm valuable in that, um, then per P.T. Barnum, then all press is good press, or all press is good press, right? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I just, I've gotten on with my life, you know? Um, you know? Uh, I mean, imagine being in a scenario, and this happened recently, where the journalist was chastising me for playing too many hit songs. Why was he chastising me for playing too many hit songs? Because I was selling out because here I was running my mouth about being a progressive artist. But yet when I was playing live, I was playing too many hit songs. So I was like, you know, you in the movie where they hit the brakes, right? Hit the brakes. Hold on. First of all, I got a bunch of hit songs to play. Number two, I wrote them. Number three, I'm proud of what I've done. So why would I not want to play those songs? Number four. And if you I'm didn't play the songs, they'd criticize that. The arrogance of this guy. Oh, no, no, <laughs> they know? did that too. Damned if no, you no, do, trust, damned if you don't. No, trust me, they did it. But number four, number four, I'm, played, I'm playing in middle America. We're not down at the art club with a bunch of guys with goatees. You know, we're, this is middle America. You're playing to 10, 12,000 people a night. That is right up the middle of middle America. You got to start with some of the stuff they know. It's, it's fine. Nothing wrong with it. Number five. Hey, I don't remember you writing about me when I was playing almost no hit songs and people were booing and throwing stuff at me and leaving early. So you can't yeah, have it I did both that ways. Too. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so here we are. 
You know what I mean? When um, are you going to come play the UK again? You know what? It looks very good for next year. Um, Amazing. I, actually... I really wanted to see that tour with Jane's stateside. I was out there as it was going on, but I was in different states as the tour was going around. But ah. I had Perry on the show. They're one of the greatest to ever do it. And the two of you oh, guys yeah. together on the road. What a package. Yeah, it was fantastic doing a bunch of shows with them. Yeah, uh, there are dates on the books for uh, the UK. Uh, I have seen them. Um, they have not been announced yet. So I'm, I'm, my, finger, my fingers are crossed to the extent of, will we get there? Because we were there before, and then the pandemic hit. And then we were there again, and then something happened. So this would be the third time we're trying to make this happen. Well, three is the magic number. <laughs> <laughs> or 33 well, in your case. Or, or, or three OG pumpkins. There you go. <laughs> well, listen, if you do come over next year, I'd love to come down and, and, and see a show and maybe take some photos and, and say hello. And I thoroughly enjoyed this, Billy. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And I just wanted thank to you. say on a personal note, just thank you for being you out there in the world. You know, there's so many people that, I think compromise who they are artistically and personally to, you know, enjoy whatever form of success they think they deserve or want. And I just love the way you've always for better or worse, just been true to yourself and been honest and authentic in every sense. And, you know, we need more of that in this world. And I commend you for that. I respect you for that. And I'm, I'm appreciative of all the music that you've given us over the years. Thank you. Um, I'm trying to find something that, that, that matches what you've said. Um, it hasn't gone the way I thought it would go, but I'm cool with the way it's gone. And it's still going good. <laughs> one hopes. I'm in the, I'm in the studio now making a, a straight up rock and roll record. Our first one in a long time, uh, especially with the three boys in the band. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's definitely going to be interesting. Amazing. Well, I'll let you go. Cause I know you've got another one straight after yes, this. Sir, thank you, you. Give you a couple of minutes break, but Hope to see you next year. Lovely talking to you. And uh, congratulations on the new record and the new podcast series. I absolutely love it. And I look forward to, to going through the other 23 episodes and finishing that. Thank you, my friend. Cheers, Billy. Have a great day. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>